Hello and welcome to the St Mungo's podcast. This is episode 36 and this is the first of two parts on depression, but a little bit different to how we've done podcasts in the past. This is a personal interview with someone who has battled severe depression and come out the other side and we're very grateful to that person. So we don't do the usual take-home points at the end, we just want you to take from it what you think is important. Now just to add, we did this interview at Scott Star Airbase which sits on the runway at Glasgow Airport, so you will hear a few taxiing Uh, Boeing 747s in the background, but I don't think it detracts from what is a very important and very interesting conversation. I hope you enjoy. Okay, so we're back at Scottstar. This feels like my home away from home. I've been here a few times now. Um, And I'm here with Mark Dunn. Mark, thank you very much for joining us. No problems. So we're here to talk about something a little bit different. Um, Mark, you are pretty much a one-man critical care team. You are triple <laughs> triple trained <laughs> in pre-hospital emergency medicine and critical care medicine. Very, very capable doctor. Um, I've known of you for a long time, but I did not know that you spent quite a bit of time away from medicine battling depression. Yeah. Right? And, and you've been very, very generous and kind enough to come and talk uh, to us about that today. So thank you very, very much. So I was thinking... We'll try and maybe go through it in, a, in an approximate time order. Yeah. Um, so if, if you don't mind just starting, uh, when do you think it, it kind of started to manifest itself? So that's a really good question because it's definitely before um, uh, clinically uh, I sought help, uh, significantly before that. I, I can probably describe myself as... Uh, almost slightly Vulcan. When I was at med school um, uh, and when I uh, arrived, I had this very kind of sheen of uh, absolute logic science base. So I kind of got that kind of uh, moniker of Mr. Spock. Uh, the other than the fact I'm, I, I, you know, I um, look slightly like the young Spock I'm from Star Trek. I'm just looking at your ears now, yeah. thinking. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I was always very, uh, a very um, emotionally stable kid. I'm very emotionally stable uh, at university. In fact, throughout university, as you know, most people um, uh, have various issues that happen, whether it's um, life events or bereavements or things like that. Um, and and I was somebody that they would come to and have a chat to. I was kind of that, that um, emotional rock. Um, I met my uh, girlfriend when I was at uni and subsequently became my wife, uh, my best friends I met at uni, and they had various different things that happened to them. Um, and so I think when things started to go wrong, I think both for me and my um, loved ones and, and friends, it was um, unusual because it was very out of character for me. But for me internally, it happened slowly enough that you didn't really realize like that slowly changing picture, you weren't aware of it. So it did come to light um, uh, just after a summer holidays um, in in 2010. Um, But it had probably been present before that at various points in my life that I hadn't really noticed it was depression. It was just going through a bit of a bad patch. But on reflection, it was definitely depression. Um, And what were the symptoms then that you started to notice when you became more aware of it? So when I became unwell, so the symptoms that I noticed was I was definitely more irritable. Um, I, I, I now remember back six months before I went off work of having a massive row with my wife. Um, 
And that's really unlike me. In general, I'm a very easygoing guy. And this was a proper, full-out, screaming row with my wife. Um, and uh, I stormed out of the house. And again, in the in the height of emotion at that stage, and even afterwards, um, I was just like, that's weird, but it didn't feel that there was a massive thing behind it. But it was... Looking back, was it a bit disproportionate? Yeah. Your reaction, was that part of... Absolutely. Absolutely disproportionate and out of character. Um, and uh, again, my wife clearly was tuned into that. My wife clearly knew that that wasn't like me. Um, and then over the coming months, more things started to happen. So for me, um, I used to uh, come home from work and basically just fall asleep. Um, I'd be exhausted uh, and, uh, and literally walk in from work, um, get a glass of water or something, sit down on the sofa and fall asleep. Um, and I would be asleep all the way through to the morning. Um, there would be things that I would uh, at work be questioning about. So I'd ruminate about cases. I've always been somebody, um, certainly in emergency medicine, I think this is a, a good and potentially a, an emotionally protective thing that if there's a case that you have, that you think about it a little bit, you you have insight into how did you manage, you question your um, behavior a bit, but then you let it go at some point. You find some resolution, that closure word that Americans talk about, but, but you do let it go. This was rumination far further. This was days, weeks down the line of questioning decisions about that you've made. It would even be in the time that you'd make a decision and then internally you'd question yourself and then try and remake the decision and question yourself and remake the decision in the actual moment. And I think that probably plays a little bit on reflection into why I was so exhausted. Um, I have, kind of mental exhaustion. Nearly. Yeah, absolutely mental exhaustion. I have this thing about, I, I'm now, um, I, I'm not an expert in any way, but I have a, a kind of a, an interest and a hobby as an interest in um, cognitive psychology, uh, cognitive effort and cognitive load. And I think the reason I was so exhausted was just like a lot of things that we do on automatic pilot, that kind of Danny Kahneman um, uh, type one thinking. So, uh, you know, a patient comes into the emergency department um, and they're medical and they immediately kind of make a snap decision, which is, you know, may not necessarily be the right thing, but it's protective from a, a cognitive load point of view. You say, okay, they need bloods and an x-ray and they're just automatically done. My thing would be that they need bloods and an x-ray. Oh, is that right? Hold on, what bloods do they need? And then go through it sequentially. And then when I've made that decision, uh, they've got sodium, it's slightly low. Okay, do I, previously I go, okay, it's slightly low. It's close enough to normal, leave it alone. Now questioning yourself, is that to do? So actually the amount of cognitive effort I was putting into everything I was doing during a working day was immense it was probably 10, 100 times the normal. So that by the time I got back home, there was nothing left. <laughs> it's like that kind of thing. Do you remember when you did exams as a kid and you know you couldn't quite realize that you sat there for three hours with a scrunched up face, scribbling doodles in the thing and then doing your exam and, uh, and you came back home and you're absolutely exhausted. And you're thinking, I've sat on a chair for three hours. That's all I've done and I'm exhausted. It was that, but it was that every day and that day for weeks and then months on end. 
And when did you begin to notice that it was becoming a problem? Did you know it then? I mean, obviously you were reflecting a lot on it now and you can look back and go, that was when it was beginning. But in that moment, did you know it was a problem? Or or, or when do you think you started to think, actually, no, do you know what? No, I didn't realise it was a problem. And I think that was the really difficult bit. Um, there's that moment, that moment of insight. And that moment of insight came after going on holiday. And it came after going on holiday because when I went on holiday, um, uh, I didn't know what to do with myself. It was such a difficult time. So I've got a best friend, he's a GP. We go away uh, as two families quite a lot and we went down to this cottage in Wales. And basically I suddenly didn't have my uh, framework for life effectively, which at that point was my work schedule. Um, and I was genuinely lost. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what to do when I woke up in the morning. I, I couldn't quite figure out because before that there was a framework. You get up, you shower, you get a cup of tea, you get some breakfast, you go into work, you start work and there's a process at work that you follow. Suddenly there was all this time with the kids, with my wife, with friends that I just had no idea what to do with. I was lost. I mean, properly lost. Um, it felt like being in a kind of cloud in a, in a, almost like you're in a desert, but yet with your friends with you and you're looking around and there's nothing on the horizon. You, you just weren't sure how to act next. Was it not knowing what to do or was it more a lack of motivation? I mean, surely as a dad, you would have known, I need to get up, I need to take them here and do this. Was, was, did, had you just, were you lacking that m motivation to do those things? Or were you literally, as you say, in a bit of a fog that you literally couldn't even think clearly, you know, to make those decisions? Or, or do you know no, what I mean? No, I couldn't even think clearly. It was that bad. So we got back after the two weeks away and clearly my friends realized that something was wrong. You know, I, they, I think at the time in, in hindsight, at the end of that, they thought I was just exhausted, um, from work. Uh, my wife clearly knew something was majorly was up and, um, we uh, kind of classic, you get back from holiday. Um, you've got kind of half a day uh, to do before you get ready for work the next day and the kids are going to get ready for school. And we decided we would go out um, uh, to the cinema and see Shrek 3. That was on at the time. And we went out and there's a scene, and, and, and this is why I remember it, it's this kind of funny thing about memories is the more emotional impact they have on them, the more hardwired and embedded they become. There's a scene at the beginning of Shrek 3 where he's trying to figure out the meaning of him being a father in life. And he's, he's at the uh, birthday party of one of his daughters, and um, there's this scene where everything's getting on top of him. There's a, a really annoying kid who uh, keeps going up to Shrek going, do the roar, do the roar. <laughs> um, and Shrek effectively just use, loses it, bellows at everybody, slams his fist down in, in his daughter's cake and the cake explodes. Um, and I just started to cry in the cinema. That resonated with you? Yeah. That was kind of how you were feeling? Yeah. Um, and... Uh, I was just in bits at the end of the cinema and uh, quite rightly so. Um, uh, when we got back home, my wife we went quietly to a room and she said to me, 
um, you need to go and see your GP, you're ill, and I'm asking you, please just go and see them because if if you asked me and I was like this, I'd do it for you. And what was your initial reaction? Was it denial? I'm okay, I'm okay. Or was it, no, you're right, I know. No, it was, I know you're right. And I think it was because of that. Uh, and it's why I refer to that bit in Shrek. It was, that was when the penny dropped. Because. You could see yourself nearly in that character. Yeah. And, uh, and okay, it worked out well at the end of Shrek 3. Um, and, and I'm well now. But at the time, all I could see was me just in that cinema relating to Shrek crying and then I knew that was that wasn't me. So tell me this, looking back, why? What, what do you think with were the main reasons that you got to that place? L looking at your life, looking at work, looking at all the kind of things that would impact or lead you to that moment. What what, what made you depressed, or what got you to that state? <laughs> a great question, the kind of twenty-four million dollar question. I, I think. I mean, I think there are obviously a number of factors. They always are. I think. One of the main parts was that in that Vulcan way that I've described myself as a kid, that actually I tended not to talk about my feelings and how I felt. Uh, there's a very good, you know, when um, when you say uh, you say uh, hello to people in the UK, you say how are you doing, and everybody goes, um, I'm fine, thanks. Um, or if you're in Australia, how are you doing, mate? Oh, I'm good, thanks. Um, it's an automatic. Uh, uh, kind of almost flippant comment of of it's all right yeah even if you're not you might be having the worst day how you doing oh, I'm fine thanks um, and I had probably really taken that on board and I just didn't talk about feelings at all so I think that's part of it I, I've changed quite a lot um, and we'll maybe talk a little bit about how I've changed and why I've changed. The other bit was about genetics. I'm sure genetics played a part. It's really interesting. You hear about stuff in your family. I don't know if your family is the same as mine, but um, <laughs> when, after I started getting better um, uh, and uh, started chatting a little bit more to my sister and my mom and stuff um, and they really appreciated how well I'd been, suddenly you get messages and you hear from them about my other family members that have had bipolar disorder, severe depression, been sectioned, etc. And you're like, oh my God, I'm from the Munsters. <laughs> you know, it, it genuinely is, it, it, it's all, all of this stuff has been uh, relatively kept quiet within your family, not because they want to do it out of malice, but, but just because, again, part of maybe the embarrassment, the social stigma. But you're like, oh my God, everybody in my family has suffered from <laughs> mental illness. How did I not know about this? So I'm pretty sure there's some kind of polyfactorial genetic part. And what, and what about work? Because obviously we're here yeah. kind of under the guise of emergency medicine, critical care. But you, you, we spoke off air just before and you mentioned that there was definitely a contribution from work. So yeah. talk about that. How, how has that impacted all of this? Yeah, so I think I think it's very interesting. Um, I think emergency medicine, critical care medicine, any of those kind of anaesthesia and pre-hospital, I think all of those um, jobs um, have very similar difficulties with them or challenges. Uh, in particular, um, you're being faced with uh, a few things, sometimes faced with horrific stories, 
patience, circumstances that somehow in your brain you've got to make some kind of moral, social sense of why a particular person has beaten their wife around the head until they're unconscious. You then have to process that you are working um, in a pattern that may not necessarily be optimal for your health, particularly if you try and do lots and lots of other things. You may need to adjust your work life balance. Um, And certainly the things you do in life, maybe you can't commit to that Saturday football morning match with your local team because actually it's just not going to fit in. And that's a real shame, but that is one of the, 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 the balances you have to make. Um, The other bit is about um, the, and I think it's, it's the two things. The first one is a lot of people go into medicine who do have aspects of type A personality, particularly the sharp end of medicine that they are very intelligent, very bright, very caring people who just want to do their best at all times and they will drive and strive to get there. Put a lot of pressure on themselves. And put a lot of pressure on themselves and don't, and don't take the pressure off when they make a mistake. And it's a mistake generally. Um, It's not, it's almost never a a, a choice of malice. Um, So that ramps up the pressure on them. And then there's the uncertainty factor and the uncertainty factor I think is a really difficult one. So I see this every day. Uh, you know, I see you as an amazing specialty to almost hide out in, in terms of, um, in terms of uh, a death of patients, because 20 to 25% of your patients will die. But you talk to relatives a lot about when their relative might die. And you have to be honest and say, I can't tell you. And what you see at that point is you see the anguish in their eyes. You see that sheer emotion of, that burden of uncertainty. And I think a lot of us in hyperacute specialties have to live with that uncertainty. We make a diagnosis on the best information we've got at the time and we run with it. But the trouble is sometimes we'll be wrong and we have to live with that. And I think those combinations of striving to be as good as you possibly can be, or even perfect, which nobody can be, um, and living with the uncertainty, I think are, factors within emergency medicine, pre-hospital medicine, intensive care, anesthesia, that can really work against you psychologically. You mentioned, obviously, it was your wife. It's going to be the people closest to you that I, that, that see it first, of course. But did anyone in work see it? Hmm. Such a good question. So I think one of the things I now reflect on is that a lot of my work colleagues, if not almost all of them, didn't see anything was up. So I think that's one of the things that I've really learned is that actually for most people operating at very high levels, your work doesn't suffer until you are so sick. Um, so yeah, you mentioned that you were you, you very focused on your patients, maybe a little unhealthily so, and but you were still obviously functional. You weren't making mistakes. You were looking after your patients well. Yeah, and, and even going back afterwards. So um, I got uh, one of my good friends became my mentor for coming back. Uh, and we talked about this a lot. I talked about were there any kind of signs, were there any suggestions in the figures and so on that my work had suffered so that my patients had potentially suffered and there wasn't. And I think, as you say, that's it. it it's, it's that um, actually 
you as an individual are very capable. If you put all of your energy into that, then you can maintain that standard of care at work, but you then have nothing else left. Um, so no, very few. So quite a few people were um, extremely shocked when I went off going, I just didn't see that happen. And I think that for them was even worse for them. I, you know, certainly speaking to them, they were like, oh my, when I came back to work, they were like, oh my God, I never saw that happening. I, I, I'm so sorry. And I'm like, don't be sorry. You know, that that's, that's fine. Uh, and I think there was also that feeling of empathy from them of, crikey, I really didn't see it coming. Could that be me? Um, so no, it, it, it bizarrely, I don't think as far as I'm aware still, years down the line affected me at work. It may have been that I seemed a bit more intense. It may have been that I seemed a bit more uh, focused, uh, potentially in the wrong way. Uh, and there may have been very subtle signs, but unless you knew me really, really well, you probably wouldn't have picked it. Could we also be a little bit oblivious to that sort of stuff? Are we educated enough in this type of stuff? Were the signs there, but we were all just so involved in our own lives and all having our own degrees of pressure uh, uh, that we just were just all a bit not aware of what each other is going through is there a little bit of that or uh, no i think there is i think i think you've definitely hit the nail on the head i mean if you if i think back um uh five years now that thought of uh health and well-being for staff really wasn't at the forefront of our thoughts and it should be now um more than ever before uh, given the the pressures the NHS is under, um, we it's not that we weren't socially educated. It was the fact that, as you said, we all had enough to concentrate on. I think I kind of talk about it like um, a tank of fuel, which is probably the wrong analogy. But um, if if you are, are have a have a full tank of fuel and 80% of that tank of fuel is going to be used in one working day for concentrating on work. That's probably a very bad balance, actually. Say so 50% is working on work um, and um, uh, uh, 40% is working on your home and family life. And then you've got a kind of 10%, which is flexible. Then you maybe have enough bandwidth, cognitive space, emotional intelligence space to pick up and... and when you see your friends and you just think, oh, actually, that's not quite right. You, you just have to have a feeling, a little inkling. It doesn't have to be something that you can actually process. And and when you say, how are you doing? And they say, I'm fine, thanks. And you go, how are you really doing? Because you've got that space. If you're already working, 80% of your tank is used on uh, work and the rest of your 20% or even 25%, although you can't have 105%, is on family. You don't have that bandwidth left. You don't have that emotional capacity left. And I think that's where a lot of us are. And I think it's only now when a lot of us are being told about health and well-being that we are trying to stop, trying to make space for ourselves, which helps you make space for others. Did you feel there was anyone you could speak to at work? Now, obviously, there's a degree of you, you weren't aware that you maybe had a problem for a long time. But even when you became aware of it, did you immediately feel comfortable that there was someone that you could approach or did it take some time from the moment that you realised? How quickly did you feel you could discuss it with colleagues? How long a period was that? You mean after I came back? Or? Yeah, no, 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 before. So the moment that you spoke with your wife at the Shrek moment, we'll call it the Shrek moment, to discussing it with colleagues. 
How long was it? Did the next working shift, or was it a period of weeks, months no. before you felt comfortable? So I'll probably take you back a month or two before. So before the Shrek time, before the summer holidays, about two or three months before that, um, there was a really bad pre-hospital case that myself and a colleague went out to where, and again, this hit home probably because subconsciously uh, that could have been me. A guy, unfortunately, um, was suicidal. He went out to a remote location, pulled petrol over himself in his driver's seat of a car and lit himself at about three o'clock in the morning. He suffered about 95% body surface area burns. The only part of him that literally um, was not um, were his boots. And he was alive um, uh, and uh, he was in extreme pain. Interestingly, not in extreme pain um, because of the burns, but in extreme pain from urinary retention because he'd managed to fuse his genitals through the flames. Um, it wasn't actually the burnt man that had the profound effect on me it obviously was a pretty harrowing case what happened for this poor guy who was conscious fully conscious uh could talk to us tell us his name um uh and we chose to give him a general anesthetic uh and intubate him for palliative reasons and then take him back to a hospital to die um it wasn't that decision it was the reception at the hospital that I got to, um, uh, which probably had a profound effect on me, which was a sign, I think, of everybody being stressed. But when myself and my colleague arrived at this hospital, there were a couple of consultants from a variety of units there, because we were obviously given the pre-alert, and, and uh, one of them directly said to us, what the hell have you brought him here for? Um, and you remember me saying that I was questioning every judgment that I made. And that set off a whole series of ruminations over the next few months. About a month later, about a month before I went off on holiday, um, I found myself sitting in my office in the emergency department with a two mil syringe of succimethonium with me with the locked office door. Um, and even then I couldn't quite appreciate that I was ill. Um, I, I was sitting there just thinking the world and my family would be in a better place without me. Um, interestingly, the crash box went off <laughs> and a crash call came out over the tannoy and I put the syringe back in my pocket, put it in a sin bin and went back about my job. Do you think you made have done it without that crash call yeah probably might have done and then on the way down to Wales um, uh, I had fleeting thoughts about uh, about suicide but on the way back up from Wales after these two weeks of just n not understanding about what there was for me in life um Unfortunately, at that point, I was not only suicidal, but homicidal. Um, so multiple points up on a drive, and you can imagine it's, it's a fairly long drive up the M6. I thought about just crashing the car with all of us in it and killing us all. So unfortunately, by the time I had that chat with my wife, I was beyond the point of going back to work. So the next morning I went to see my GP. And within a few hours, I was seeing a consultant psychiatrist 
And within a few hours of that, I was essentially uh, under direct supervised care. Um, so I didn't really get a chance to to chat to anybody at work. Um, did I talk to anybody at work in the times leading up to that? Um, only very little bits, but again, that kind of denial of it's all right, I'll just be able to work through it. Um, could I have? I'm not sure I could at that point. Maybe things were too far gone. Maybe things were at a point where I would not have been able to accept uh, myself that I needed assistance in a bizarre way because I still couldn't quite accept that I was ill even though I was clearly suicidal. So a very kind of weird times. And, and I, again, I kind of reflect on this now is in that period in time, six months or whatever leading up to when I was off, at what point could an intervention have changed my behavior to the point where I sought help and maybe that hadn't quite come to that? I really don't know. I really don't know. I do know now because I'm so much more aware of how bad it got. But then before I'd kind of finally admitted to myself, uh, yeah, I'm not sure. Um, what do you think stopped you in those really dark moments? Obviously there was the crash call. That was probably an extremely f fortunate uh, situation. But even driving up that AM6, even those other times that you felt suicidal or homicidal, what do you think prevented you in those moments from actually acting on those thoughts? I've, I've thought about that quite a lot. And, and the answer is, and the truthful answer is, I really don't know. I don't know what stopped me because you're going along a motorway at 70 miles an hour. Um, it would be fairly easy, easy Simple, to, just, quick. to just yank the wheel really hard one way. Uh, I know I'm going to roll the car. I, I can't give you an answer as to what stopped me. Okay, so thank you very much for talking so openly about that. If you don't mind, we'll kind of look more at the recovery side of things. So let's take it again, probably in a kind of time order sort of, of thing. Let's talk about your steps to recovery. So you mentioned there you went to the GP, you saw a psychiatrist quite quickly. And did you, am I right in guessing, did, did you end up in a psychiatric unit? Is that what you what you said there? So no, I didn't. Very fortunately, um, uh my health board has an intensive home treatment team, which essentially is a psychiatrist that will provide effectively almost an IPCU level of care, but within your home. So I've subsequently found out if you, in general, if you, if you get admitted psychiatrically to, uh, uh, and you're a health board worker, then in preference, particularly, um, um, in the position that I am, that they'll try and actually not admit you to your own health board. Um, so it would have been a, a kind of neighbouring health board, which, say, for example, might have been the borders or something. Um, I, I do think about that now. Would that have been a good thing or a bad thing? Um, but uh, no, effectively, I went from my GP uh, direct to uh, an appointment literally within yards of the GP centre to uh, um, a consultant psychiatrist. Um, uh, and from there, uh, I was put under the care of an intensive home treatment team with uh, consultant psychiatrists, registrar psychiatrists, um, uh, CPNs, and um, 
uh, a group that I never even knew existed called Psychiatric OTs, um, uh, one of which uh, uh, was very instrumental in my recovery. Um, but from that point onwards, there was a very clear decision-making process for them. I've subsequently learned in terms of risk assessment, where I would be and um, <clears throat> about if I decline treatment, um, that I would be sectionable um, and uh, where treatment might be best placed for me. So ultimately, I, I can't tell you my mind wasn't in a good place at that point, but they ultimately made the decision for me to stay at home. Um, uh, and that was agreed with my wife, um, even though we had two young kids in the house. Um, and uh, <laughs> I suppose to cut a long story short, effectively for the first I think three or four weeks, I was fairly heavily medicated. Um, so to give the listeners who most of which will have medical training or some form of clinical training, um, I was on, I'm trying to get this right. So I was on diazepam, chlorpromazine, uh, metazapine, quetiapine, and there was something else in the early days, another major tranquilizer <laughs> all wow. at the same time. So I was fairly bombed out for um, several weeks, actually. Um, what I think the, uh, albeit the science, but what I think effectively the plan was, was to just try and shut my brain up. So my brain was basically still running at a thousand miles an hour. Uh, Even despite all of that? Yeah, overthinking everything. And all of those medications were just to try and stop my mind burning itself going round and round in circles. Um, and it kind of worked. So I suppose after a while, I was kind of a zombie for a few weeks, according to my wife. Um, Unpleasantly so, or what, what's that experience like? Honestly, I don't remember. Okay. Um, my memories of that time are so fragmented. Um, and it's very difficult to separate some of those memories in the early days or weeks from the memories further weeks on and, and still temporarily they're all mixed up a lot and I have to rely on my wife to tell me kind of at what point we kind of got through that part um um and uh we had um essentially psychiatric services coming to our house I think it was up to six times a day so wow. um to make sure I was okay um and obviously Nikki got to know them quite well um uh, and then, and I was kind of pretty well camped out in our upstairs sitting room. Uh, that's kind of where I lived. And doing what, if you don't mind me asking, are you literally just zombified there or are you functioning? Are you doing things? Are you, what, what, what are you thinking I, about? What I was, oh, you mentioned you don't remember it that well, of course. I don't remember, but according to my wife, I was doing nothing. I was literally sitting on a sofa doing nothing. I would have to be reminded to get up, go and get a shower, um, uh, uh, food to get brought up to me, that kind of stuff. Wow. Was there any resistance initially from your part? Like, you know, no, this isn't true. I don't believe you. Denial type thing. Or was it literally just exhaustion? It was just, you're right. I, I need help. And uh, yeah, you'll for, just accept everything. Fortunately, there wasn't denial. I, it just was that, as soon as my wife said, go and see the GP, as soon as I went to see my GP, um, who I think, according to my GP, I think I just sat down in a chair and said, I think I'm unwell, and then burst into tears. 
Um, and then she got me to fill in some piece of paper and I can't even remember what, what particular scale it was, but it was, um, that one of the self-assessments for depression. And, uh, uh, I think at the, I think one of the questions is, have you ever felt suicidal? And I think I like ticked about seven times over the box. Um, and I think she just stopped and took the form off me. <laughs> I've seen enough. Yeah. So, um, I think from that point, I just fell into this big hole of nothingness. Um, but it wasn't denial at that point. I knew I had no fight left in me and it just was exhaustion. So let's talk about the psychiatric process. So obviously there's the early deep sedative phase. What happened after? Do you mind going through some of the, the different aspects of the say you mentioned OTs for example so what, what other things and, and inputs did the psychiatric services have over the coming weeks yeah so um again temporally these are probably a bit um mixed up but I'll, I'll try and go through things so so one of the things was after a little while um specifically I I remember kind of getting prescribed a walk <laughs> which kind of sounds really weird. It's like a kind of dog, isn't it? Um, but the, the CPNs would come in um, and they would take me out for a walk. Um, and uh, it, it, I remember we had the particular path that we take and that was just because um, that was what I did. I don't think it was any choice of my part. For the CPNs, they just started wandering and I just wandered and they would just kind of walk with me. Talking about stuff? like No, at the beginning it was just silent. Okay. And then gradually with time, we'd talk a little bit more and talk a little bit more. Um, we would, as time improved, we'd start doing um, little cognitive exercises, um, even literally just putting lines onto a page. So you get a piece of paper um, and just drawing, like, you know, when you do the kind of four vertical lines and then the scratch for five, even just literally doing that to count. Um, uh, and then there would be more, uh, more kind of CBT type tasks, uh, which would be about what are you thinking now and how's that making you feeling? So trying to associate, um, thoughts and emotions, but that was a very slow process. That was a process of months. We do remember that, um, and again, I can't remember how, how many weeks or months after the beginning this became was there was this very odd period where I became very paranoid. Um, my psychiatrist, remember, I remember calling it a flight to health. So as the kind of fog lifts, both of medication, but also of, of, um, of depression, is that you almost get this kind of um, uh, release of energy. You, you, your body hasn't really done anything. And very quickly, my mind started to whirl again. Um, and I started making abnormal connections, um, uh, between things. So, um, I became unfortunately very paranoid. My, my final diagnosis was a major depression with psychosis. Um, uh, and the psychosis, unfortunately was paranoid against my wife. Um, so I thought that she was having an affair and going to leave with my boss <laughs> at work because he had phoned her to find out obviously how I was doing and I had put two and two together and made 22 so they were then having an affair and were going to leave 
Um, I'd be very paranoid on going on the walk. So um, I always describe myself, I'm not a hoodie person, but I became a hoodie person. So when I was going out for walks, I realized that I didn't, I wanted to have a hood up and, and, and cover my own head. Um, and uh, I then started to have a lot of um, paranoid thoughts about people around me, that they were talking about me, that there was some thought withdrawal, um, uh, and then started getting even more paranoid where I didn't want to go out again. And I was very scared for my own safety. Um, my wife describes that as probably her most terrifying time for her, um, where she actually left the house with the kids. Um, and there was a question about me staying in the house or going to hospital with the intensive home treatment team. Um, but I managed to stay in the house um, uh, and work through that with antipsychotics and so on. But a very weird time. Um, I, I can truly say that at that point there were delusions. I, I, I truly believed that um, various things were happening. My wife was doing various things and other people were uh, out to get me, as it were. Um, but that did eventually settle. Um, but again, that there was, um, the difficulty at that point was, uh, again, I was starting to lose insight. Um, and one of the things I clearly remember being really frightened by was, um, that for that period that I was going to get ECT and I became deeply, deeply worried about getting ECT. Um, uh, to the point where, you know, it's all I could occupy in my mind was, was thinking about getting dragged off and getting ECT. So that wasn't a nice place to be in. It was kind of frightening and emotionally very draining. Um, but again, with time and treatment that settled down, it settled down slowly. It's not like suddenly you turn on a, turn on a light bulb of delusion and turn it off again. Um, it settled down and slowly things seemed to improve. That period of time, that probably took the best part of, I guess, I don't know, three, four months or something. Um, and then at that point, CBT kind of continued and it's very much um, just a gradual increase of um, an outdoor activity, a walk. So that prescribed walk every day. Um, and it didn't matter whether it was absolutely tipping down with rain or not. And I always remember there was one of my CPNs um, and she... <laughs> We, we went out and had a walk and this was probably months into it. And we went and had a walk around Arthur's seat and it absolutely was one of those absolute cloud bursts. I mean, like properly, you know, where the, where the rain is hitting the streets and bouncing back up to your knees kind of stuff. And we did the walk anyway and we were both absolutely sodden. And she remembers it because she remembers walking back to her um, offices, <laughs> literally <laughs> dripping water down into her socks and shoes. But, you know, it was part of my therapy. Um, and we went from there to doing more and more CBT, more activities, uh, wife and kids rejoining me back at home, um, and medications getting adjusted, um, and slowly trying to reintroduce normality into my life. I, I, I remember one of the kind of earliest, I suppose, normal activities other than walks that I did was actually cooking. I really love cooking before. I really love cooking now and baking. And I actually started doing that as therapy. Um, and then as a cognitive therapy, I took up, uh, I did a, a, a course in uh, mindfulness-based cognitive therapy. Um, and again, trying to help me 
process what happened. But that that period from then on, kind of the four months on, it was still another um, uh, nine, ten months, I think, before um, I got back to work. I clearly, at various points over that nine months, thought I was ready, and everybody clearly thought I wasn't, and they were right, and I was wrong, um, and. Yeah, it's just a, a very slow, steady process of of refamiliarizing my mind and body with normal life and not work, just normal life. So a huge thank you to Mark. I'm very, very grateful to him for being so open and honest about his experience. It's such an important topic, but it's very hard to find people who've had such a negative experience yet are so willing to share that with us. And I hope there has been some value to you, the listener. And I didn't want to do any take-home messages because I wanted you to decide what you felt was important to take away. So part two of this conversation will be in three weeks' time. Until then, take care.